we have a great resource in what has been done. First and foremost, we need to absolutely pass the lessons on, and especially those that have been proven through formal research. And I have to say that it's easy sometimes to forget to do that. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we speak with retired Army Colonel Dr. Evan Renz, a general and burn surgeon who has extensive experience and training in dealing with complex wounds from his multiple deployments and in working at the U.S. Institute of Surgical Research's burn unit in San Antonio. Dr. Renz recounts the innovations and lessons learned during military conflicts over the past century in treating casualties with complex wounds experienced in battle. Dr. Renz provides insights into the evaluation and treatment of complex wounds and shares some pearls that he has learned over his distinguished career. He emphasizes the critical importance of documenting and learning from our past to help prepare us for future conflicts and to make sure that these lessons are included in military medical training opportunities. Find out more about Dr. Renz and our previous guests on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Colonel, Dr. Evan Renz to Wardox. Evan, thanks for joining us today. It is my pleasure, gentlemen. So our listeners will be happy to know that they can go back and listen to your episode where we actually discussed your history, but can you just give our listeners a brief background of your training in general surgery, trauma surgery, and burn surgery so that we can understand the time frame in which you entered the Army and did your training? It has been approximately 25 years since I was honored to join the team at William Beaumont Army Medical Center under the tutelage of Dr. Steve Hetz and trained to become a general surgeon, left El Paso and came to San Antonio to work at the Institute of Surgical Research, where I began and then spent the next 10 to 15 years serving in the burn center and caring for traumatic wounds, predominantly burns, but as many know, the burn center has a, a wide assortment of complex wounds. And over time, transitioned into PMC proper. And with the exception of a small episode of time, going back to school and then working at the VA hospital, I remain at Burkhardt Medical Center, taking care of some of the same patients that saw in the war years. And so your time at ISR and in the burn center, what, what were those years? And the reason I ask is because I want to try to get the listener an idea of what wound management was like when you joined the Army and how it's evolved during the time that you were in the Army. I feel fortunate to have started surgical training when I did in the late 90s as we were seeing some of the products of the hemorrhage control work that uh, doctors Holcomb and Shriver were doing at the time, predominantly with uh, liver injury. And so the focus on hemostasis was, was part of my training. And then coincidentally, the negative pressure wound therapy device had only become popular in the U.S. in the mid-90s, about the same time I was there. And I remember placing the, my first negative wound treatment device in 1997 and never never slowed down after that point. So there were some significant changes in surgical care at the time that I was learning to become a general surgeon. Other technologies that were starting to be used in that same period were the development of the bedside ultrasound, the sonocyte device for trauma assessment, what later became popularized as the FAST exam. And then transitioning to the Institute of Surgical Research, as many are familiar with, again, to see the, the fruits of all the research in hemostatic dressing, 
development as we as we know them today. So th- those are the things that come to mind for me that evolved during that time. So you've been around for a while, but not as long as remembering World War One and World War Two. How has wound care evolved really since that first World War and then on through maybe Vietnam, Korea, up to today? Where did we start making some really significant moves in how we treat wounds from the battlefield? The first edition of the NATO Manual of Emergency War Surgery was published in 1958, and it was largely compiled of lessons learned in World War II and then through practice thereafter by some of the same personnel. And if you go back to that, that it wasn't even the first edition, it was just the original manual. There are many similarities to be frank in terms of the prioritization of hemorrhage control, debridement, the, the timelines are very similar to those we use today. The importance of irrigating the wounds and getting them cleaned as much as possible. There was a tendency, uh, at least according to the textbooks, to try and primarily close some of the wounds earlier. And I think most of us have have seen how that changed in the ensuing decades where we learned to leave more things open and to exteriorize the bowel for abdominal injuries, etc. But to be frank, aside from advancement in medications, the basic principles that we have all come to know with in terms of removing non-viable tissue, practicing meticulous tissue handling to keeping the patient resuscitated and hemodynamically stable have, for the most part, remained unchanged with refinements to make better. I can't honestly cite too many things that I would say were a marked change practice since the World War II manuals. I will say that in looking at some of the publications out of Vietnam, example, the care of the combat wounded in Vietnam by uh, General Surgeon Hardaway, for example, there were simply unique things that were talked about. For example, the, the textbook has a whole section on the treatment of wounds to the extremities from punji stakes, sharpened bamboo spikes placed in the pits that were oftentimes covered with feces or other contaminants. Other than the uniqueness of those injuries, the importance of treating the blast injuries, for example, the explosive injuries were, for the most part, following the same basic principle. And so if someone was to ask you, what were those basic principles in the Vietnam era and in between before the current wars, what would you tell them were those basic principles that were espoused in the manuals and the subsequent editions that followed? Recognition of the severity of the wound and the injury tracks themselves was something that has been almost every one of the editions of emergency war surgery, talking about the importance of understanding ballistics and blast and how the projectile and the contaminants from primary, secondary, and tertiary blast will cause devastating injury beyond that which we would expect. So the lessons we, dare we say, relearned in Afghanistan about the penetrating debris that would travel up soft tissue channels was seen in the Vietnam era, some of the mines, different different design, but in some cases, same result. If you look at some of the photographs from the late 60s and early 70s from the combat wounded, they're, they're strikingly similar to those that we saw in Afghanistan. And I believe that if the surgeons who operate in Iraq, Afghanistan are really honest about their their first exposure to those wounds, they will likely admit that they had to relearn some things that they that the textbooks probably talked about and did talk about, but we had simply forgotten or we hadn't we hadn't read. So to your question, sir, about the basics, 
understand the mechanism of the injury, know that you have to look deeper and farther than you might otherwise think you have to because of the energy involved and the need to look again and again and not rely on that first, by any means, the first operation or even the second. I think those are, those are the basics. And then also excise or incise widely, extend the tracks, look further up or down the extremity as the case may be, and, and understand that the foreign bodies and or potentially infected material may be further than you. So how about at the point of injury? What's the most important thing when, let's say you don't even have a medic there and your buddy just experienced some major wounding, what, what should that person be able to do or be able to help his buddy? What, what's important priority there? Well, the, the good news there is that we can all rely on the TCCC guidelines, and we, we know what those teach us about hemorrhage control first and foremost. And the lives that we've all seen saved in the field, either by the buddy or the medic or the corpsman, or even sometimes the individual patient was the rapid assessment need to stop the bleeding. Simple as it sounds, that is in many ways the first, second, third priority. Say that because of how many times we saw patients come in with a tourniquet of multiple limbs. So if you think of the extremity injury of particularly blast, where the first action is to place the tourniquet on the first injured extremity and second is second wounded extremity. And, and I think many of us have seen them come in on four extremities, saving lives. So hemorrhage control, hemorrhage control, and hemorrhage control. So I had the fortune last year of deploying with Colonel Kirby Gross to Baghdad. And we had some patients that were transferred from roles one and two. And I remember vividly him telling me, you really have to be sure that when you encounter a wound that you don't leave any debridement for the next level of care. Would you agree with that and potentially expound on that statement? So I love the way you entered this conversation because 2005, I was standing in the operating room table with Kirby Gross, just as you described. So I'm first and foremost, I'm not going to contradict anything that Professor Gross says. That's just, that's just a, a rule. But I would simply add to it that we should not leave anything that we can find within that reasonable period of time. I think that the only error one can make in that regard would be to stay too long, the stay in play, trying to look for absolutely every piece of gravel that could be in that wound. We don't want to leave any, absolutely. But when our colleagues at the head of the table uh, are telling us the patient's dropped another degree of temperature and they've just transfused another unit of blood and they're, they're a little bit worried and they're starting to watch that pressure sag, I think you have to bear that in mind also. And I'm pretty sure that, that the good Dr. Gross would agree with that, that there, there are limits that we don't control. So we do as much as we absolutely can with, and as efficiently as possible, provided we're not hurting the patient. So if we need to stop, transfuse, resuscitate, warm up, and then come back, I, th I think maybe instead of coming back in 24 hours, we come back a little soon. So expand on that a little bit more. We hear a lot about damage control, resuscitation, damage control, surgery. Where does wound management fit in that initial damage control scenario? Well, clearly the presence of non-viable tissue, particularly if it's in an area where we have a bleeding need, needs to be debrided and removed. So sometimes that damage control process may include an expedite decision to amputate. I think that we if again, if we're really honest with ourselves, most of the combat surgeons will, will recount at least one case where they wish they had made a decision sooner to remove appendage, absolutely hoping that they were going to be able to preserve it. And then the next day saying, man, I wish I would have 
I wish I would have made this call a little bit earlier because the wound burden took a toll on the patient's hemodynamic. That's it's real. I think it's physiology. I think that when you, we all know this, that when you start to see the acidosis worsening, the coagulopathy worsening, and it's because you have a wound burden because of an extremity that probably just needs to go away. That to me is part of the damage to toral resuscitation. It's a tough call and it, it's not easy. It's not one that people criticize others for generally and say, well, yeah, you surely should have done that. It's not a, it's not for the Monday morning quarterback. It's for us individually to look at and say, I was on the fence. I made the call, but in retrospect, I wished I'd taken that tissue off earlier. So I think that that's a, how it fits into damage to resuscitation. So let's say you're the first surgeon to see a patient who's coming from the field with a tourniquet in place. What are the special considerations you have to take as a surgeon dealing with a wound that's downstream from a tourniquet when you're evaluating it for the first time? I think the same, the same rules apply in terms of examining the overall burden. Sometimes it's obvious even with the tourniquet up because of the dreaded nature, the consistency of the tissue. The color will likely not be accurate, is particularly under tourniquet. The contractility may not be accurate either. So I think that there comes a point where you, as you tourniquet still up, you're, you prep the wound, you do the initial operative prep just to get the mud, the dirt, the trees, the grass away, and then you're getting closer to doing a final prep for the operation. And you let the tourniquet off slowly to see what may be bleeding immediately. Once you realize you have control of that vessel that was under tourniquet, now you can really assess, look at the rest of the extremity and see how it looks. And I think you have to, one, one, as long as you have hemostasis of the great vessel or the larger vessel, not just a great vessel, but a large vessel, you have those ligated, I think you can, you have some time, let the tissue warm up, you can store circulation, and sometimes you can buy some time and give yourself another opportunity. So you said earlier that you put your first wound back on in 1997, and that really actually baffled me because I started my general surgery residency in 2007, and I remember, at least from my training, which was Army general surgery training, that we were doing things like bolstering skin grafts with uh, nylon sutures, and we were doing a lot of still doing wet to dries and Dakins. And it was really sort of an evolution that my general surgery staff, I felt, brought back from the wars in that 2007 to 2010 that really, to me, brought WoundVac to the forefront. And so I was actually very interested to hear that you had put your first WoundVac on in 1997. Can you take me through the progression of how the negative pressure wound therapy evolved during your career, starting maybe at 1997, and how the wars shaped that? treatment? For whatever reason, I remember the case fairly well. And it was a sacral decubitus ulcer patient with fairly large stage four wound, classic triangular shape over the sacrum. And the KCI, the vendor for this product just happened to be in the hospital and had been in the clinic and was espousing the value of this relatively new product remember the sponge. I remember the large pump. I remember the canister and being told, you just put it on the wound and put the, put the drape over it, seal it down, turn it on, and it's going to do magic. And I'd never seen one, but this wound was extensive. We did not have a plan to do a rotational flap to cover it at that moment. So the sense at the time was, what's it? there was no downside. Let's try it. And I remember being surprised, leaving it on for probably 48 hours at the time, taking it off and thinking, wow, that looks healthier. It looks beefy. There was some bleeding. It looked a little better. And we just did serial changes of that negative pressure wound treatment. And eventually, if memory serves, that particular patient did get a flap, sort of some type uh, to uh, cover that wound. But that was the first 
the first use for me of that device, the use between then and say the beginning of uh, OIF, OEF, when we started to take care of combat casualties was intermittent. And it was oftentimes just first extremity soft tissue. That's all I remember using it for. But by the time I transferred to the, the burn center and we started taking care of the large surface area burns we were using, the negative pressure continuously. As you know, as the, the papers reported, the use continued to expand. It was almost as if there were competitions to see who could come up with the most unique and complex uh, dressing, probably overdoing it. By that, I mean entire extremities trying to seal things that weren't sealing real well. And what we did occasionally was use additional suction, wall suction through an intermediate uh, water canister to try really to get a seal. Problem with that, and this is something I've shared with residents and fellows over the years, if you can't get the seal with the product design pump that will likely, even though you can suck it down, you're, you're causing some desiccate and you can actually take a negative pressure wound treatment dressing off that's dry instead of surface you'd like to see. So I think there is rationale and, and frankly, the, the reps, the company reps that sold the product, they were constantly reminding us that there was a downside to exceeding those. They were probably right. And I agree with that, that if you have a wound vac that's malfunctioning, at least the way I practice is that wound vac either needs to be replaced or taken off with a temporary dressing and not hooked up to some sort of other suction device that maintains the seal because it actually doesn't help the wound. It needs to be that the wound's treated by either intermittent negative pressure or low intensity negative pressure, not some unpredictable negative pressure therapy that just as you mentioned. I completely agree with that. You mentioned before when the reps came to you said, hey, try this out on that complex wound and it's going to work like magic. What is the physiology? How does it work? What is it about negative pressure wounds treatment that makes it a, a, a viable treatment option? Well, Doing some research on this over the years, I found a couple papers on the subject. And the actual use of negative pressure, albeit in a smaller scope, dates back to the Roman era. There were, there were reports of surgeons using devices to include having human beings known as wound suckers who would use oral suction to cleanse wounds and pull debris and pus and fluids out. Not a great job, but it's recorded. There are anecdotes written about this. And then there was a technique of cupping, using a glass cup and placing it over the wound, heating it and left in place and would draw some, some fluid out. There were, over time, different smaller devices developed by different surgeons uh, across the world who would, and wound care specialists to, to pull out the uh, fluid. So there clearly was an idea hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the current devices, that getting the extra fluid out of the wound, pulling debris and microorganisms and effluent out would be a good thing. And apparently there must've been something to it or they, they wouldn't likely continued it. And then in the, as I understand the history, what's recorded leading to patents, et cetera, was the development of different trials of materials leading to the different types of granular foam, the granular foam, if you will, that was found to both pull the extra fluid and some residual remaining blood that didn't drive blood, the particles that weren't removed with the original derailment. Uh, irrigation, and then just the, the serous type fluids that accumulate with inflammation. The study seemed to support more rapid healing. Seen the posters, you've seen some of the early papers on this. And by mid, early to mid 90s, the, the product was in full swing as we know it 
today. The one thing I would say at the, the burn center that I adopted that I'm glad we did was the silver impregnated products, whether it be silver and island dressings, tactico, different materials to include the silver impregnated granular foam did provide that benefit. Whatever benefit the silver ions provide, it was included in the negative pressure wound dressing sponge as well. I can't cite you the, the data to support it. I simply tell you that anecdotally, I felt it was all, there, were, there was benefit during your wound. So wound vax or negative pressure wound therapy come in many different types of configurations. You have the ones, as you mentioned, that draw out excess fluid and debris and blood. But there's also devices that will instill different types of medications and then draw out not only the medication that's been instilled into the wound, but also the extra fluid, as we've mentioned. Can you take us through those different types of devices and when you might choose that over just simply one that does pure uh, suction? Well, you're absolutely correct. The technology is certainly there, whether you call it a vacuole or whatever you want to call it, or you fuse. I think that there are mixed reports. There are not a lot of reports in the, the literature about the technology, but I think there's enough positive evidence to support the use. The question to me becomes, what do you hope to gain from the in installation? Is it just in the form of a treatment? Are you trying to put in a, a topical antimicrobial? What we used to think of as use as 5% self-myelin solution or some other irrigant or even a, a dilute Dakin solution that those would, would be options. Personally, I don't have any experience doing this in the combat environment, in the pre-evacuation or even the route care environment. So I would be talking out of school to tell you that I done that because I have not. And as far as I know on the equipment sets for the role three, having been there last year, the wound vac device is actually still the small portable wound vac machine that was present in the first iterations, essentially. I mean, it's a small portable suction only machine that the patient can take with them and then it can be sent back into theater once it's been transferred at, say, launch tool or at some other location. I believe that's correct, sir. Yeah, I was going to ask, you, know, you you mentioned before that it wasn't a great idea to use regular wall suction, and these devices were designed with the purpose of not over-sucking the fluid out. And I can remember my first experience in deployment in 2005, we wound up having to use wall suction um, because you know sometimes the, the machines broke down or we didn't have enough or whatever. So you've seen them in the burn unit and they work fine in the ICU, but when you're in a combat support hospital or on a chopper evacuating a, a patient, are these machines designed to handle that kind of stress? You know, in all honesty, I don't know the status of the airworthiness testing for the current iteration. It has been now over 10 years since I have deployed and it is very possible that there is a current version of the uh, commercial available pump that's airworthiness tested and certified for flight and answers all those questions. I, I don't want to tell you something that's not true. Don't know the answer. Well, I'll give my personal antidote. And, and it's actually an interesting story because it does involve the burn center. So I had a burned patient who came into Baghdad last year, had been shot with a, a flare. And so if you look at the CPG, which I find interesting, is there's a number to call for the burn center. And so I ended up calling that number and it actually rang through to the nurse's station at BAMC. And I said, I have a patient who's been burned. I'd like to get some advice from a burn surgeon. And the nurse who had picked up the phone said, just give me one second. And sure enough, on the phone comes a burn resident who said, well, let me go talk to Dr. Cancio because he's the staff on for today. And we talked through the burn management. And my, my question to you is this, is having worked in the burn unit for a long time, you would most certainly take a lot of those phone calls. When you would take those phone calls from people who were asking for burn management care, what were some of the key questions 
that you would be asking in regards to the wound and the management of that patient? Sir, thanks for sharing the the anecdote and just for the listeners who don't know the 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 number for the word burn is two eight seven six. So the burn center two one zero nine one six two eight seven six. There's also the worldwide global phone, which is two one zero two 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 eight seven six. Everything up there is the pager is two eight seven six all for burn. So it's really easy to remember. But you're absolutely correct. That phone, it's red in color, just for for those who haven't seen it. It rang a lot between 2004 and 2012, for the most part. It still rings, it's just not as much. The calls came from all over the world, 24 hours a day, and as designed, because in the CPG, it's listed, there are uh, posters at Transcom for the number. The basic questions are, first and foremost, how is a person injured to make sure that all the trauma, other issues are concerned? Because we forget sometimes that military trauma, military burn patients are first and foremost trauma patients, and it does matter as to the mechanism. If it was an explosion, what else is, we have to ask what else is going on because we know burn patients don't die from their burn, their thermal injury immediately. If they, if and when they do die, it's usually due to infection later on. So the thermal injury is, is one that becomes easily distracting. And so we try talk to the caller about what else is going on to make sure we're not getting focused on the rock. But once we're there, we're just talking about the burns. It's let's, let's confirm the size. What, what's the, total body surface area involved, and it's easy to walk someone through that and try and get a pretty accurate determination, size and the severity by depth. And of course, that conversation about the trauma will include the airway status, whether there was likelihood of inhalation component and how they're doing. A lot of times, frankly, the patient was already innovated. So we were, we were past that. And then the focus is, frankly, on resuscitation, first and foremost, fluid with a goal most of the time avoiding over-resuscitation. So we talk about how much fluid the patient had received to that point, and then if they hadn't received much, how we're going to initiate it and adjust it for the training. Once that those questions were resolved, then we could talk about the best way to treat. If, if it was available, my bias, if they're going to be flown out, was to generally get them into a silver nylon wrap, which not only works well, easy to apply, but in the event the patient gets delayed or get rerouted or gets stalled someplace, you buy some time. You don't have to change those dressings. Often you can leave them on 48 hours, 72 hours, keep them waste, and the effect is still. So you mentioned that infection is one of the major complications of burn and, and wound care management. How and where do antibiotics fit into wound care management? Let's start with the non-burn patient. So the all the guidelines that we have available to us, whether it's Tectro Combat Casualty Care or the JTS CPGs, generally recommend treating any open, complex, combat-related wound with an initial dose of antibiotics in addition to the tetanus. The choice of antibiotics may be limited by what's available, but the... Uh, ANSAF or, or something similar to it, if, if it's IV and if it's oral, TCCC recommends uh, moxiflox. So a, a t- first 24-hour dose is what is generally recommended for all of the patients we're talking about. Interestingly, the data shows us over a very long period of time that most patients did not receive more did not receive them than, than didn't receive antibiotics, despite existing guidelines recommending. It's unclear a lot of times why they weren't. And again, we're talking about non-burn patients because isolated burn injury, even a large thermal injury, does not warrant initial prophylaxis, prophylactic antibiotics. If there's other injuries, open wounds, traumatic wounds, amputation, et cetera, yes, that would, that would drive us to treat with antibiotics. But not the isolated burn injury because the data is pretty clear there too that 
that that is not what the patient's at risk for early on. So we've discussed that point of injury really needs to focus on TCCC hemorrhage control. And that is the patients move through the roll two and roll three. The goal there is to provide life-saving care and wound management that is timely and effective. What would you tell people is the care that the patient would receive in regards to their wounds once they get to the roll or echelon four slash five level, once they're back at either launch stool or at the BAMC Burn Center or Walter Reed, where they're getting more definitive care of those wounds. How would you tell people that care occurs? What I've what I witnessed myself over many years in operating each of the environments that you just described, Iraq, Afghanistan, in launch tool in from time to time, Walter Reed uh, doing during the flights uh, between launch tool back to San Antonio. I would first and foremost applaud the process because what I've witnessed without exception was prioritization by the entire surgical service to get those patients to the operating room for a head-to-toe examination of all wounds, utilizing the documentation that came with them. And I, I emphasize that because it has been shown, there are, there are a couple of good papers on this, that the it is critically important that the surgical teams from the first operation through everyone in between up until that final destination document what they did, if possible, why they did it, if it, if it helps, and then anything that they placed in the wound, left the wound. I think it's important that we, the surgeons who take those patients, the OR for that, that either could be the definitive operation or just the first one back in the roll four or five. Pay attention to those notes to see what was going on and maybe what explained how things, how the plumbing has been rerouted. What reconstruct, if everything was just exteriorized, that's, that's great. We should know that. Usually surgeons are pretty good about documenting what they ligated where and how. So we, we it help explain what we're, what we're looking at. So I think that's the first thing. Re- read the chart, whatever's available. And then assume nothing. Try and prove what you're looking at without disrupting something that could hurt the patient. That's why I think you have to read as with some of the operations. If your patient's been 72 hours out since wounding, say 72 to 96, they uh, open abdomen, for example, you're going to start to see things close down, but you still have to go in and irrigate. You, you have to look for collections of either just old fluid, bloody fluid, or even pus in places that, that it could have collected. So I think a detailed, meticulous, complete exploration, washout, just imperative. Wound and, as noted, assume nothing, have to look. And oftentimes you'll be guided by some films and either, maybe if you're lucky, maybe even a CT scan. There are occasions where things have been forgotten, missed, or just not addressed because of time. Now, I know you weren't a general surgery resident during that time period, but I was. And I can tell you that receiving those patients, that they would come in with these massive charts. And while you were proud to take care of them, you knew that you certainly had your work cut out for you. And everyone, the the advice that I at least was given as a resident was you need to make sure that in order to not miss something, you do that complete evaluation. And that would oftentimes include additional imaging, such as another CT scan, just to make sure that in the transport, something didn't get stirred up or an abscess accumulate during that time. What advice would you give people in a practical manner when you receive a a trauma patient who's been severely injured, has had maybe a week or two of care and now you're assuming their care at that higher level. What was sort of your your practical, logical workup of that patient? In some ways, you had to start over, at least mentally, working through the complete primary and secondary survey because of the time that had elapsed. And that's not to discount anything that was done to that point, but simply to 
make sure that that something wasn't missed. So they, the beauty of ATLS, even though it was not, never designed for a, a surgeon necessarily doing the successive operations, there there are merits to it because if you because we're also used to thinking in those terms, running through the primary and secondary survey, head to toe, think finger or tube in every orifice, just looking for anything that, that either just hadn't been examined yet uh, to include just, just things come to mind, like looking for the perf TM that wasn't picked up early, looking for the, an oral lesion that any injury that uh, just may have been missed, a Thank you. Some examples of things that we we found from time to time, not often, but it had it did happen where some items of clothing were left on for whatever reason. They made it all the way back uh, through evacuation. Some injuries hiding under the, the clothing because they just hadn't been examined. Not major, just and of course, if the patient's awake, there may be new complaints that, that elicit findings. I I recall. Some horrifically injured combatants who had smaller area but serious injuries involving their hands and feet didn't show up right minor compared to everything else. So imagine a um, carpal fracture that really just didn't make the top 10 as they were being evacuated. But by the time they got back and they said, hey, my hand still hurts and realize there, there's a hand fracture. And we call those distracting injuries in surgical care. Is that something bigger distracts you from the smaller Absolutely. Injury? And it's just, I think when, when these particular examples I'm, I'm thinking of, so happy to have saved the life and sure, and the situation chain that they're now back in CONUS, it was unfortunate it was missed, but at the same time, we could deal with it later. One of the things that deployed medical professionals have to deal with are limited resources. And one of the things I remember from deployment was we had a lot of patients with a lot of wounds and a limited amount of OR time. And we wanted to get them back for washouts and dressing changes. But we just found that we were so busy that we had to figure out how to do it at the bedside. What advice would you give to those people caring for people with wounds who have limited resources, what can be done at the bedside to take care of, let's say, a wound with a wound back or some other kind of wound that normally would have to go back to the OR, but your OR is full? That is a, a very practical question. And I think it, it also ties in to the subject you probably have discussed elsewhere too, the prolonged field care, whether it's a limited resource because of competition for it, or it just doesn't exist. So I think that the clinical practice guideline that has been developed just the last couple of years about prolonged field care gives great advice on that. So I'm not trying to avoid your question. I'm simply suggesting to anyone who listens to this, that there are great pearls contained in the CPG for prolonged field care that address almost every aspect of care to include the, the wounds. And it talks about everything from uh, what we'd like to do with the sterile warm saline to what we have to do, which is just clean, boiled water, maybe a half-strength Dakin solution that we make up and we irrigate with that wherever we're at, whether it's on a litter, in the field, in the back of the ambulance, at least we're debriding the wound. The same with dressing changes. We would prefer to do it in the OR with the light and the temperature and all the tools, but if the uh, circumstances don't allow it, I think that you can do almost everything the bedside, provided that you have enough light to do it safely and you have enough appropriate analgesia in some cases. I think we can't forget that component. We can do it. won't be very pleasant. I think our patients probably deserve a little bit of pain control as we do those dressing changes. I think if it was a choice between leaving it on dirty for another day versus doing it at the bedside or in a less ideal environment, uh, but using the best technique we have, it's probably better just without letting it sit there. I think all of us have taken off 
taken out and off dressings, particularly think of the, the Curlex packing that's been in the extremity for over a day and what that smells like and what the uh, growing with the early pseudomonas, you want that. So there's one wound that we haven't really covered, and that's wounds that we create as surgeons. And the one that I'm thinking of is the laparotomy. So the opening of the abdomen, and you make sure that you've stopped the hemorrhage. You then control the contamination of the bowel. But that wound that is created or that incision is has undergone a significant evolution in the last 20 years in the management in the sense that it used to be that those abdomen wounds were closed at the index or the first operation. But now that's not exactly the case. Can you tell us how over your 25-year surgical career that the management of the abdominal wound changed, and particularly when it came to caring for combat casualties? I think you summed it up very nicely where we learned that there was a downside uh, many, many years ago to closing something that wasn't already closed and abscess formation that occur, the peritonitis that occur. The textbooks from, including the emergency war surgery manuals going back very early on, talked about doing the initial operation, particularly involving the bowel and not attempting restoration of continuity, but just removing the damaged components knowing we had to go back and if we couldn't just if we couldn't be count on being able to go back soon to just create the theostomy even if just say roughly but as best we can to avoid any possible village early on is valuable with respect to the wound itself he talked about the the celiotomy wound itself i think that people have become very innovative in how they kept the bowel moist, the uh, products are available to cover the bowel, overline the bowel itself with the moist blue towels or the sterile drapes, what, whatever is available, and then a, a loose closure, towel clip closure. Many products have been developed to do this market, and then, or the actual negative pressure wound therapy abdominal closure devices, which many of us have used. That, that work pretty well. Unfortunately, there have been times where we couldn't get the patient definitively closed as we would like, and we had loss of domain now leading to open abdomen and what that can be. So there, there is a price to pay. So you mentioned a very important principle just now that I think that I'd like to know your words of wisdom on. And that wound that you mentioned, early closure may not be right, and we have other wounds that have a negative pressure wound dressing on. So a wound is a wound, and you don't want to close it early. How do you know when a wound is ready to be formally closed, when it's been treated in a temporizing manner like we've discussed? If we're, if we're restricting our, our decision here to the, to the combat environment where we, we will, we're going to evacuate some, think we, we have the luxury at least we had the luxury over the last 20 years of knowing we could place the temporary wound dressing, place it to suction, or not, maybe in wet to dry, and enough time to get back to a CONUS hospital, level four or five, where we could uh, formally evaluate and make that decision in the light of day. So it was great, optimal environment. But in terms of just making the decision, I think, Using our, our tests of tissue viability, confident that it's as good as it can be. We have healthy muscle and tissue and the fascia is not compromised or it's cleaned. It's tractile and we have good blood flow and we don't have evidence of necrosis. I think that's the best we can do. And then we, we have to make a judgment. And in some cases, we don't close it completely. We close it almost completely, the little window. We've all done that. I think general surgeons and, and orthopedists uh, do these slightly differently in the extremities sometimes. I've seen different techniques with the vessel loop ladder closures that some people like, some people disdain. They all work. I think it's a matter of uh, surgical preference, but I think at some point for all patients, it's a based on knowing what healthy tissue looks like. 
And in my case, a lot of times there was no definitive closure, but rather there was closure, primarily closure, even delayed was not going to be. That's one of the beautiful things about skin graft. Place the skin graft on almost any. Or now you can close the wound completely and then place a negative pressure wound dressing on top of the closed skin, which is also a treatment for treating those high-risk wounds. That's right. So what research and training needs to be done now to prepare us for the next conflict? What do we need to be doing now? My opinion on, on that, doctor, is that we have a great resource in what has been done. That first and foremost, we need to absolutely pass the lessons on that have been documented, and especially those that have been proven through formal research. And I have to say that it's easy sometimes to forget to do that. So even, even now, we're, we're not that many years out of the active combat theater. And as Dr. Causey pointed out, it, still deploying to, to different environments, just not with as many combat casualties. But I think that in every training opportunity we have with the surgical residents, regardless of specialty, the faculty who either have those lessons firsthand or read about them need to pass them on. Just talk about them because what, what I'm observing, gentlemen, is that with the advent of technology, first laparoscopic technique, endoscopic technique, endovascular technique, and now robotics, it is very easy to put too much distance between the, the most modern, minimally invasive technology, the open techniques that we will all likely still use in the battlefield. I could be wrong, but I, I do lose a little sleep over that, wondering if that library of information is what's being lost because of the advances in technology. So I know you asked about research. I would admit that there's a lot of knowledge that could be transmitted right now that could be easily be lost and then have to be assimilated in a very short, brief fashion if we deployed next or when we deployed next, not it, but when. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Evan Renz on Wardock's podcast. Evan, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us, and thank you for your service to the nation. It has been my pleasure to spend this time with you, and thank you. Thank you for listening to Wardocs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. Wardocs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode, and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.